Class 8, Session 3, The Minor Prophets. Hosea, Malachi. I want everyone to watch another short video. Video 4, https colon slash slash youtube.b slash fhnux4g5voy, The Minor Prophets. The chart below gives a general time frame when the prophets prophesied, which empires ruled at the time, and some other historical events to put them in context. Chart above from https colon slash slash newconnectionschurch.org.uk slash the minor prophets and introduction slash the minor prophets have a long span of history and ministry first the pre-assyrian minor prophets obadiah joel many believe jonah amos hosea and part of micah's ministry also occurred before the northern kingdom was taken captive by assyria which include half of the twelve eight pre-assyrian minor prophets up to 722 bc one Obadiah. I. 1-9, Judgment Against Edom. 2. 10-14, Indictments Against Edom. 3. 15-16, The Day of the Lord for Edom and the Nations. 4. 17-18, God's Blessing on Israel. V. 19-20, God's Kingdom will be established. His name means, Worshipper or Servant of YHWH. It is probable that he was the earliest of the minor prophets, and potentially a contemporary of Elijah and Elisha, or came shortly after them historically. One reason we know he was early, is because the prophet Jeremiah references his prophecy against Edom slash Esau in Jeremiah 49 7-22. The prophecy revolves around God's indictment and judgment upon Edom. Who was Edom? The Edomites, those who lived in Edom, were descended from Esau, Jacob's brother, so they were relatives of the Jews. Edom occasionally is referred to as a brother to Israel, Amos 1 11-12. Edomites seem not to have been barred from worship in the Jerusalem temple with the same strictness as the Ammonites and Moabites, Deuteronomy 23 3-8. Yet, as is often the case with personal relations, the closest relative can be a bitter enemy. According to the biblical writers, enmity between Israel and Edom began with Jacob and Esau, when the former stole the latter's birthright and was exacerbated at the time of the Israelite exodus from Egypt, when the Edomites refused the Israelites' passage through their land. Be that as it may, much of the conflict also had to do with the fact that Edom was a constant threat to Judah's frontier and moreover blocked Judean access to the Gulf of Aqaba. 1. Though they were problematic for centuries, it is Edom's partnership with Babylon and their attitude towards Judah's downfall, that filled up the cup of God's wrath against them. The Edomites rejoiced that their brethren were ransacked by the Babylonians and God was holding them accountable through Obadiah. His judgment upon Edom was certain. Obadiah's oracle of divine retribution against Edom for assisting in and gloating over Judah's day of misfortune serves as a warning to all nations, since they, too, are in jeopardy of having their deeds returned upon them as the day of God's wrath approaches, Obad. 15-16. 2. In contrast to God's judgment upon the nations, God will restore Israel to the land and bless her greatly one day. 2. Joel. I. 1-1-12, The Current Locust Plague. 2. 1-13-20, Lament the Sacrifices and Beware the Day of the Lord. 3. 2-1-27, Description of the Locust Plague and Call to Repent. 4. 2-28-32, The Day of the Lord. V. 3-1-17, God's Judgment on the Nations. Vi. 3-18-20, God's Blessing on Israel. Joel is a mysterious man. He just shows up. It is difficult to date his prophecy, though I, along with others would date his ministry to around 830 BC. There are various reasons for that. 
one of which is that much of what he said corresponds to the situation in the book of Amos. Also, there is no mention of the Assyrians or Babylonians by name. There is no mention of a king, but ruling elders and priests, which indicate that his prophecy may have occurred during the reign of young King Joash, 2 Kings 11:4. 3. However there is some difficulty, because he cites other prophets, such as Isaiah and Amos. Joel 1:15, Isaiah 13:6, Joel 3:10, Isaiah 2:4, Micah 4:3, Joel 3:18, Amos 9:13. It could be God gave them both the same truth, or they quoted Joel, or that the situation required similar language. His prophecy is directed towards the southern kingdom, and the temple Jerusalem in particular. That is where the priests have their responsibility and he addresses them, 1-9, 13-14, 2-15. The main theme of Joel is the day of the Lord. In his time, there was a locust plague, which he uses to implore the people to repent or face God's judgment. He then refers to an immediate judgment of God by an invading army from the north. Yet, this has future applications and implications when God's final judgment comes. Joel, like the other prophets foretell a time of restoration of Judah, 230-3-3, the final battle of Armageddon and God's voice from Jerusalem. Application, you find in the prophets a lot of denunciation of bad leaders. Whether it is the kings, priests, false prophets and others, God's prophets often targeted them. Why? Because of their influence and because they were to be God's agents of righteousness and direction for His people. This is one reason why Paul, in 1 Timothy 3, and Titus 1, give specific and strict requirements for the leaders within the church. If you are a Christian leader in any capacity, take your position and responsibility seriously. God does. The same truth applies to those of us who are parents, tasked with raising our children in the nurture and truth of God. 3. Jonah. I. 1-1-16, God's call and Jonah's attempted escape. 2. 1-17-2-10, God's rescue and Jonah's response. 3. 3 to 1 to 9, God's second call, Jonah's preaching and Nineveh's repentance. 4. 3 10 to 4 to 5, God's rescue of Nineveh and Jonah's response. V. 4 to 6 to 11, God's object lesson for Jonah and God's compassion. If you have been in Sunday school or church for any number of years, then you have heard the account of Jonah and the whale, or better translated, big fish. We don't know what animal it was. And it is probably best we don't. Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom, during the reign of Jeroboam II, and is mentioned in 2 Kings 14:25, which puts his ministry between 780-760 BC. During this time in history, the Assyrian Empire was in decline, and they were not a threat to the nation of Israel just yet. God called him to go to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria at that time. That was a major city at that time in history and quite big. But Jonah went the opposite way, west, and booked a ship. Through a series of events, Jonah eventually preached and the people in Nineveh repented and turned to God. As to the writing of this book, there is debate. Some say though he preached to Nineveh, the book was written to the Israelites, to caution them about their arrogant nationalism, though nationalism is not necessarily a bad thing. Others say the focus was on the Gentile Ninevites and God's work through Jonah to them. In either case, it was written by Jonah. If it was an object lesson for the Israelites, God could have done that but we can say God was trying to teach His prophet a lesson in compassion, which is probably the main theme of the book. We see a masterful structure too. There is a hint of what will happen to those in Nineveh with the sailors, and God ceasing destruction upon them, by calming the storm. God ceased from His coming wrath because those in Nineveh repented and changed their ways, 310. 
The words translated destruction for Nineveh in 310 and discomfort for Jonah in 4-6 are the same. Basically, Nineveh was going to experience destruction from God if they didn't repent. They repented and God relented, 3-5-10. Jonah experienced the discomfort of the heat, and he built a shelter, 4-5. God provided a plant to cover him and shade him. Both did what they could do to stop calamity. Yet, both were not enough in themselves to completely stop what was coming. For Jonah, God provided a worm to eat the plant. Jonah suffered a form of God's retribution, that Nineveh escaped, at least at this point. God will pronounce judgment on Nineveh through Nawum about 100 years later. A few thoughts about the book of Jonah. We need to be careful about saying the sailors and those in Nineveh trusted in the Lord as we use that phrase in the church today. There may have been some who truly became followers of YHWH. That is possible. But, at least for some, they viewed the God of Israel, as an angry God whom they offended, and was going to judge them. They did what they were told by the prophet, and those actions stopped God's wrath. Just because they repented, doesn't mean they continued to follow the Lord. Also, a phrase found four times in the book of Jonah is God appointed or designated, depending on your translation. This phrase is found in 117, the fish, 4-6, the plant, 4-7, the worm, 4-8, scorching east wind, and shows God's sovereignty over the circumstances in Jonah's life, even in his disobedience. This shows God's grace, but also his rebuke of Jonah. Application, the same goes for us. God is in control of the situations in our lives, and even when we sin and disobey, as Jonah did, he's still on the throne. He is the one who has authority to do as he pleases in his world. Jonah 4-2 references Exodus 34-6, to God's declaration of his character. As I mentioned this became a common phrase within the Jewish community to refer to God's character and this is one of the many places we see it. See also Psalm 86-15, 103-8, 145-8, Nehemiah 9-17, and Joel 2-13. While all of this is true, another factor we must remember, is that the Bible is about who God is. We see His character throughout Jonah. We see His direction of His servants. We see His love and compassion for the Gentiles. We see him giving Jonah a second chance after he rejected his calling. We see God's holiness too, because he said he would judge those in Nineveh if they didn't repent. We see how patient God is, particularly with those who belong to him. We certainly see his grace. 4. Amos. I. 1 1 2, Introduction to Amos. 2. 1 3 2, 16 8 Oracles against the Gentile nations. 3. 3 1 5, 17. Oracles against Israel. 4. 5:18-27. Woe to those who want the day of the Lord to come. V. 6. Woe to those at ease in Zion. Vi. 7-3 visions and challenge from Amaziah. 7. 8-1-9-4-2 visions and judgment oracle. 8. 9-5-15. God's sovereignty and restoration of Israel. Amos, whose name means burden bearer was not educated within the religious establishment, nor in academia. He was a fig farmer and herdsman from Tekoa, which was a village about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. His short prophetic ministry is dated between 760-750 BC, during the latter part of King Jeroboam II, as seen in 1-1 of his prophecy in 2 Kings 14. His ministry was not to Judah, but to the ten northern tribes, and specifically in the town of Bethel, which had become a haven for idolatry in Israel. During this time, both the northern and southern kingdoms were prosperous, but Amos, as well as Isaiah and other prophets, saw through the veneer. Though there was financial prosperity, there was spiritual apostasy and immorality. 
Amos' message is not wishy-washy, but straightforward, Israel and Gentile nations. Your time is done. Therefore, one theme of the book is God's denunciation of spiritual apostasy, which He saw in His own people. Things had gotten so bad, that in their arrogance, the nation only though the day of the Lord was going to be God's wrath on the Gentiles. Not so. Amos makes it very clear, that God's wrath will not only fall on the Gentiles, but even His own unbelieving people because of their sins. Application, God takes sin very seriously. We should too, as individuals, as families and as the church. A second, and major theme of the book, is social injustice. Those in the northern kingdom who had done well, did so by taking advantage of others. Amos stands in the middle and speaks up for the socially disadvantaged, the poor, the needy and others who were being exploited by the affluent in power, the rich women, dishonest merchants, false priests, corrupt rulers and more. Application Though we must be very cautious about the current social justice movement, and how the world defines this, the Bible is clear, God's people must help those who are in need and speak up for those who do not have a voice. To do right or do justly we need to base our social actions on Scripture, and not on what is popular within the culture. Biblical social action is based on biblical doctrine. God is the Creator, Sustainer, and Deliverer. He is holy and hates sin and oppression in every form. He loves justice and is concerned with all of humanity. Every human is God's creation, regardless of color of skin, educational background, country of origin or economic status. We were all originally made in His image. This means everyone has dignity, value, and worth. Jesus is the Messiah, who came to seek and save the lost. Salvation proves that sin is a reality in the world and while we cannot eradicate it totally, we must remember that salvation involves not just the soul or spirit, but also includes helping people physically. The Church is to be the change agents. We are to shine the light of Christ within the dark and dying world. We never enable sin, but expose the darkness and do what is just in the eyes of God. 4. Application It doesn't matter who you are, what you have or don't have, where you came from, or how much education you have or don't have. God can use you. Yes, it is good to get an education, and we should take that opportunity. But even if you don't have a Bible degree, you can still be used by God. Don't sell His power short. 5. Hosea. I. 1 to 1 to 2 to 1, Introduction, Marriage, and Children of Infidelity. 2. 2 to 2 to 23, Gomer's Unfaithfulness. 3. 3, Hosea's Faithfulness. 4. 4 to 6 to 3, Israel's Unfaithfulness. V. 6 to 4 to 10 15, Israel's Judgment. Vi. 11 to 14, YHWH's Faithfulness and Love for Israel. Hosea's name means salvation. God instructed him to marry a woman, who had three children, each having a specific name referring to God's dealing with Israel. There is debate whether God instructed him to marry a harlot or prostitute up front, or if she became a prostitute after they got married. He prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel, or Samaria, or Ephraim, which was the largest of the northern tribes. He also had a long ministry. His ministry extended from at least 760 to 710 BC, 2 Kings 14:17. 5. Remember, his ministry and life were closely intertwined, as his marriage was a living illustration of what God wanted to show Israel. So, his message was not only verbal, but visual. The theme of this book is Israel's harlotry or unfaithfulness to God. They worshipped idols, as chapter 4 states. They, as Gomer turned away from her faithful husband, turned away from their faithful God. He gave them over 200 years to be faithful to him from about 931 BC, with the death of Solomon and split of the kingdom, 
to 722 BC, when the Assyrians invaded and took the northern kingdom captive. Hosea warned them that the Assyrians were coming, and if they didn't repent, judgment would fall. This book is put into what the Jews called a chiastic, chiastic, structure, or chiasm, chiasm, also called a palestrophe. This is a particular way the Jews wrote to emphasize certain points. You find this structure all throughout the Bible, Old, and New Testament. It was structured like, Abba. It could be a very simple ABA, or more complex. Often, the middle part was the main point. For Hosea, his book is structured, Abtba. The D is 2 to 5 to 8, referring to the fact that there was no acknowledgement of God in Israel, or their unfaithfulness. That was the main problem. Application We too are tempted to be unfaithful to the Lord. This book speaks as a warning to us today too, when we want to do things our way, in our time, for our purpose. But we also must be careful in applying this book. Some may think this gives license for a believer to marry an unbeliever, which it does not. Hosea was a man called by God to a unique situation in history, to teach God's people Israel a lesson. A lesson they rejected. God won't ask a Christian to do this. 6. Micah. I. 1-2, Introduction, Indictment of and Judgment on God's People, with Hope. 2. 3, Indictment and Judgment on the Leaders. 3. 4-5, Hope, Restoration, the Current Crisis and Future Purging. 4. 6-1-7-7, Indictment and Judgment on the Nation. V. 7-8-20, Hope for the Nation. Micah means who is like Jehovah. He was a contemporary of Isaiah and Hosea, during the Assyrian crisis. Some call his prophecy a miniature Isaiah. 6, this from about 735 to 700 BC. His ministry was also unique in that he prophesied to the northern and southern kingdoms, though his primary emphasis was on Judah in the south. Micah denounces everything, from the injustice done, to the pagan worship practices in the north, to the empty religious practices in the south, both of which God hates, and more. However, in his denunciation of sin, he has two main themes. One theme is the deliverer. There was a promise of a deliverer in 2.13, which had an immediate fulfillment when God protected Jerusalem from Assyrian invasion, in response to Hezekiah's prayer in 701 BC. This is also a picture of what the ultimate deliverer will do. The biggest portion of the deliverer references is of course in 5-2-9, where we find out where Messiah will be born. In the pre-exilic prophets, they did not use the term Messiah just yet. They viewed someone as the future ideal Davidic king, who would bring deliverance to the remnant of Israel-slash-Judah. 7. Also, note that Micah gives a prophecy of God saving Gentiles in 4-1-3. The second theme is the famous verse 6-8. He has told you, mortal one, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God? This verse is plastered everywhere in Christian circles. But what does it mean? These commands come from God, whose very character is justice, kindness, and sovereign control. Remember, this was spoken to His people, who were living under the Mosaic Law. This verse sums up what God expected of His people. They are good principles for us today too, but again, we must define them biblically, and not culturally. Next, we come to the second grouping of prophets. Be pre-Babylonian-slash-exile minor prophets, up to 587 6 BC. 1. Nuum. I, 1-1-8, Introduction Psalm. 2. 1-9-2-2, Destruction of Nineveh and Deliverance of Judah Predicted. 3. 2-3-3-19, Nineveh's Total Ruin Described.
Nawu means consolation. Though he was from the southern kingdom of Judah, his message was specifically geared towards the great city. Nineveh. As I mentioned, he pronounced God's judgment upon them like Jonah, but this time they didn't repent. He prophesied between 650 to 620 BC, at a time when the power of the Assyrian Empire was fading and Babylon was rising. We know this because he, refers to the fall of Thebes in Egypt, 661 BC, as a past event. 8. The fall of Nineveh occurred in 612 BC. If you remember, the Assyrians were cruel and brutal people. Though Nineveh was a magnificent city, their time had come to be accountable to God for what they did. In other words, the judgment that Jonah hoped for, was going to come to pass. Through Nawum, God wanted the Assyrians to know that He was the one who was overthrowing them and destroying them. Just as they showed no pity to their enemies, God was going to show them no pity as well. I promise to give you more details about them. The barbaric military policies and practices of the Assyrians terrorized the ancient Near East for more than two centuries. The Assyrians used a well-developed propaganda to convince the nations around them that they were invincible. Failure to submit had its consequences, and the Assyrians had always appreciated the value of making public examples of those who rebelled. All this psychological warfare had the desired effect of reducing the need for actual military engagement. Enemies and prisoners were publicly subjected to torture that included flaying, burning alive, amputation of various body parts, including parts of the face, and various other atrocities. 9. There is one theme in the book, God's wrath. His just judgment was going to fall upon them. They had repented about 100 years prior to this, but that seemed to be short-lived, as their time had come to be judged. Application, make no mistake. God will judge. We too must warn unbelievers of the wrath of God that is to come. This is not a popular message in the church today, and in the past, it was overdone many times. But the reality is, God's grace is real and wonderful, and God's wrath is real and terrible. 2. Zephaniah. I, 1-1-13, Universal Judgment Against the Nations and Judah. 2. 1-14-2-15, The Day of the Lord and Judgment Against Gentile Nations. 3. 3-1-8, Indictment Against Judah and Warning of Universal Judgment. 4. 3-9-20, Restoration of Judah. Zephaniah's name means hidden by Jehovah. He prophesied between 640-609 BC, during the reign of King Josiah, and was a contemporary of Jeremiah and Habakkuk. He seems to have lived in Jerusalem and may have been a member of the royal house. Though he prophesied against the Gentile nations, his main indictment was against Judah and their pagan worship practices, and turning away from the Lord. Some say he prophesied after Josiah's reforms and some say he prophesied before Josiah's reforms between 628-622 BC, according to 2 Chronicles 34 3, 8. It's hard to say, but his message is still the same. He came about ten years or so after Nawum. Religious syncretism under King Manasseh took its toll on Judah. Many people knew no other king, nor any other worship experience. How sad! This was the environment of his ministry. His main themes were the day of the Lord, as with other prophets. Again, this was a time when God would bring His wrath upon His people and others. This was often seen as an immediate situation, with the Assyrians or Babylonians for example, and projected out to the world in the end when Christ returns. Another theme is God's vindication of Himself and His people. God often promises restoration to the Jewish people, as we have seen. This is to show the world that He is in control, keeps His promises and will vindicate His name or character, as well as His people. Application, we need to be very careful and wise about defending our reputation. Yes, there is a time to stand up and expose the lies. 
But if you are a Christian leader, you will always have people who are against you, accusing you, slandering you, and more. If you spend all of your time trying to defend yourself, Satan has you right where he wants you. Why? Because you are ignoring your responsibility and neglecting to invest your time in what really matters. This requires wisdom, and you may need to get some outside counsel regarding your situation. Let God defend you, and in the end, He will make sure it is put right. 3. Habakkuk. I. 1-1-4, Prayer, Complaint Against Judah. 2. 1-5-11, Answer, God will send the Babylonians. 3. 1-12-17, Prayer, Habakkuk questions God's justice. 4. 2. Answer, God's instruction and two answers. V. 3-1-2, Prayer, Request for mercy. Vi. 3-3-19, Acceptance, God is sovereign and Habakkuk trusts Him. His name may mean to embrace, which is very ironic, considering what he asked the Lord in conversation about God seemingly allowing sin to take place. God's response is that he cannot embrace this sin, so to speak, or look upon sin with approval. We don't know much about this prophet, but his prophecy is unique, as it is primarily a dialogue between himself and God. He was last of the pre-Babylonian-slash-exilic prophets, about 620-605 BC. He knows what God is going to do and his question is, Lord why will you use a pagan nation like Babylon to judge your people? The main thrust is trying to understand God's ways. This is a different form of theodicy or trying to justify God's dealing with humanity and specifically regarding evil. This was more of a theodicy on a national level, rather than personal level. Habakkuk did not suggest that the people of Judah were not deserving of punishment. Rather, if God gave the Babylonians victory over Judah, would that not show God's approval of the Babylonians? In many ways the book of Habakkuk deals with the same basic issue as the book of Job. Habakkuk was concerned about the justice of God when a wicked nation was prospering. 10. God did give Habakkuk some answers, though Job never knew why, and the answer surprises us. God's answer focuses on what the righteous should do within difficult or uncertain circumstances, and what is that? Live with integrity. Be the light God commands and empowers you to be in the midst of a dark world and situation. Another part of God's answer to the prophet is the assurance that though God was going to use them to punish His people, He was also going to judge the Babylonians for their own evil. In either case, God focuses on personal responsibility, individually and nationally. This is the theme of the book. Application Habakkuk asks and answers the question we often ask, Why? Why did this happen? Why didn't this happen? Why did I lose my child? my job, my spouse, etc. These are real-world questions that people, and mostly Christians, ask. We, like Habakkuk, have the idea that life and things should be a certain way. When life and things are not that way, then we wonder what is wrong. God's answer. Stop focusing on things you cannot control and will never understand. Trust me and live a life that honors me, and I will take care of those things you cannot comprehend. This can be very hard to accept, but it is true. How honest are you with God in your prayer life? Habakkuk was very honest, as were others in the Bible. It's okay to tell God how you feel. We should always be respectful, but if you are hurting, angry, upset, disappointed, discouraged, depressed, frustrated, sad, lonely, etc. tell Him. Guess what? He already knows. Being honest with God is one way we will be able to grow closer to Him in our life. We now come to the See Post-Exilic Minor Prophets these three prophesied after the return of the exiles. They were deported under Babylon, and freed to return home under the Persians, and Cyrus' decree. First is. 1. 
Haggai. I, 1, Message 1, Call to Rebuild the Temple and Remnant Response. 2 2-1-9, Message 2, Promise of Restoration. 3. 2-10-19, Message 3, Call to Holiness. 4. 220-23, Message 4, Message to Zerubbabel. Haggai means festal, and he was a contemporary of Zechariah. Haggai's prophetic ministry was very short, only four months from around August to December, in our calendar, in 520 BC. He had one task, call the people to rebuild the Temple of God. Though he talked to the people in general and specific, that was the main point of his message. Remember, the remnant came back from Babylon Persia about 538 BC, and they began rebuilding the Temple about two years later. But discouragement and indifference set in and the site lay idle for some 16 years before God stirred up the people through the prophetic ministries of Haggai and Zechariah, cf. Ezra 5-6. 11. His prophecy gives a good summary of what the prophets did. They rebuked, gave hope, support, promised blessing and God's restoration. At times the blessings and restoration were dependent upon the people's turning back to God. At other times, God says He's going to do it, based on His covenants with Abraham and David. In Haggai, the people were comfortable, and neglected their spiritual responsibilities to God, mainly the reconstruction of the temple. Some were discouraged, because they remember Solomon's temple in all its splendor, and looked at Zerubbabel's temple and how it was lacking that splendor. That discouraged them. The people needed a good kick in the pants. They also needed to be reminded of God's faithfulness, as seen in their leader Zerubbabel, who is pictured as a symbol of the Messiah and His blessing which was to come. His theme was the temple. That was everything to the Jews and should have been. It was a symbol of God's presence, though His presence left as Ezekiel saw. It was also a symbol of God's faithfulness. God brought them to the land, kicked them out of the land and then brought them back. Again, this had never occurred in history up to that point. Application, by application, for us, are we comfortable? It's great when the bills are paid, the family is healthy, the job is good, and the future looks bright. But that is rarely the case with most Christians, particularly those in persecuted countries. God uses calamity, other people, sickness, problems and more to kick us in the pants, and wake us up out of our spiritual lethargy. For the Christian, we need to be careful of just going through the routine of going to church, praying, reading out Bibles, and not having a heart to know God, follow God, be changed by God, or serve God. 2. Zechariah. I, 1-1-6, Call to Repentance. 2. 1-7-6-15, 7-8 Visions and Joshua the High Priest. 3. 7-8, Messages on Justice, Mercy, and Restoration. 4. 9-11, Oracle 1, Messiah's Rule, Israel's Redemption and Messiah's Rejection. V. 12-14, Oracle 2, Israel's Enemies Defeated, Israel Restored and Day of the Lord. Zechariah means, Jehovah has remembered, and he was a contemporary of Haggai, as mentioned and they both prophesied to the remnant who returned from exile. He was of the tribe of Levi, which means he, like Ezekiel, was a priest. Zechariah's ministry was just over two years. He prophesied during the rule of King Darius I of Persia, 521-486 BC, and his ministry was from about 520-518 BC. Nehemiah 12:4, 16 record that he returned with Zerubbabel and Joshua and was the head of the priestly family of Edo. His message matched with Haggai's. Haggai called the people to rebuild the temple. Zechariah called the people to rebuild themselves spiritually. He too rebuked them, offered hope, called them to repentance and to live a just life. 
Zechariah's prophecy also looked further beyond the immediate, to the Messiah's rule one day. Yet, he also addressed the formalized religious practices without heart that was taking place within the remnant. He also reminded the people of why God judged their forefathers, because they didn't listen to God and His prophets. He also encouraged them with a message about God's restoration of Israel and how the nations would seek the Lord through God's people, the Jews. Aside from the above, the main theme of Zechariah is the Messiah. Within chapters 9 to 11, there are various references to the Messiah and his rejection. 9 to 9 is quoted in Matthew 21 5, Mark 11 1 10, Luke 19 28 40, and John 12 12 15. 11 7 is a reference to the Messiah being killed, along with his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver in 11 13, quoted in Matthew 26 15, 27 9. Then in chapters 12 14, you find various references to the Messiah and his reign. 12.10 says they will look upon him whom they pierced, referred to in Revelation 1.7. The fact that the Lord will fight as the warrior king is referred to in 14-1-4, referred to the day of the Lord which has been mentioned often within the context of the prophets and the New Testament writers, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, being one example, as well as Revelation 6-19. Zechariah also refers to those who survive, will come up to worship the Lord in 14-9, 16. This will occur after the Battle of Armageddon in Revelation 16, and will be a reality during the millennium in Revelation 21-6. 12. Connected to the Messiah, the other theme is the Day of the Lord, or eschatology. This is referenced above. His teachings on this are also connected to the other Old Testament prophets who spoke and wrote about the Day of the Lord. 3. Malachi. I. 1-1-1-5, Introduction and God's Love for Israel. 2. 1-6-2-9, Unfaithful Priests Rebuked. 3. 2-10-16, Unfaithful People Rebuke. 4. 2-17-3-5, Future Judgment and Purification. V. 3-6-12, Call to Repent. Vi. 3-13-4-6, Israel Restored and Call to Remember 13. About 100 years after Zechariah and Haggai, Malachi was sent by God to Judah to prophesy to them roughly between 430-420 BC, after Nehemiah went back to Babylon upon the completion of the city and temple, though some date Malachi earlier, around 500-460 BC, before Judah's decline during the time of Ezra. In either case, he is the last Old Testament prophet, and prophesied while other Old Testament books were being written and finalized through Ezra, Ezra, Nehemiah, 2 Chronicles, Psalms. Jewish tradition has regarded Malachi, along with Haggai and Zechariah, as a member of the Great Synagogue. This synagogue was a council of scribes and other leaders who helped to reorganize religious life and culture after the Babylonian exile. These men played a key role in collecting and arranging the books of the Twelve Prophets in the Hebrew Canon. 14. Malachi's oracles were basically God's response to questions people were asking, or the dispute they had with YHWH, 1-2, 6-7, 2-14, 17, 3-7-8, 3-13-14. They were wondering how God had loved them, how they despised and defiled Him, where God was and more. It is plausible that the responses to Haggai and Zechariah were minimal and short-lived. Therefore, God sent one last prophet to His people before He closed His messages to them, and with a purpose. The desired effect of the disputation speech is to leave the opponent devoid of further argumentation and resign to the divine decision. 15. That is why Malachi ends like it does. A Cliffhanger the people were once again in spiritual and moral decline, which led them to question his character, and love. The Lord reminded them through Malachi that he does love them, because they are his covenant people, 
and his love will never ultimately be taken away, as in a covenant marriage. Therefore, one of his themes is marriage and divorce. Here we see that marriage is a covenant and there are responsibilities associated with it. 2 14, 15. He also rebuked the men who divorced their wives and married foreign women in 2 16, which echoes what occurred during Ezra's and Nehemiah's time when the men were rebuked for marrying pagan women, and thus defiling themselves. Application, sin deceives, because Satan deceives. These individuals were the next generation or the second generation, after the exiles returned from Babylonian captivity. They were committing the same sins their forefathers were committing in certain ways. There was even some idolatry, 2 10-12, and their hearts had turned away from the Lord again. They were apathetic to God, the temple, holy living, their families and more. This is the world in which we live today, and the same message could be proclaimed to many churches. When we act in this way, we too wonder about God's character and love. Sin clouds our thinking and prevents us from seeing God as He truly is. Don't be deceived. The Messiah and Elijah are other themes in His prophecy, which is what He ends on. Despite their rejection, Messiah is still coming and there will be one who comes before Him as a messenger, proclaiming that Messiah has come. It was Elijah, whom the Jews expected to come before Messiah, to proclaim the Messianic age had come. That completes the study of the Old Testament and the Minor Prophets. Below is a chart that summarizes them, though some of the dates are different. Chart above from https colon slash slash www.slideshare.net slash yesdos.rs slash chart off minor prophets. The intertestamental period. As I mentioned in the opening video, there was the time between the Old and New Testament called the intertestamental period. From 424 6 fourths BC there is what the Jews referred to as the 400 years of silence. To set us up for class 9 in the New Testament, I want everyone to watch this video. Video 5, end of class, https colon slash slash b slash row, intertestamental period, 9 minutes. Now a summary of some history in this in-between time. The Persian Empire arose in 539 BC, and some Jews returned from captivity under Cyrus, which had never occurred before. A new temple was constructed, Ezra Nehemiah, but synagogue still existed. Between 334 to 323 BC Alexander the Great spread Hellenism, Greek culture, language, and religion to create unity in his empire. He defeated the Persians and Israel went to the Greek Empire about 332 BC. Upon Alexander's death in 323 BC, his empire was given to his four generals. Below is a map showing the Grecian, Greek, Empire. Map from, https colon slash slash www.understandchristianity.com slash timeline slash chronology ladder prophets intertestamental period slash Many Jews who did not return to Israel from captivity could not understand Hebrew and around 200 BC, 72 scholars translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, the Septuagint. Jews had some religious freedom until 198 BC when control was taken by Antiochus III. After much political intrigue and betrayal, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes or God Manifest took control of Israel in 175 BC. Because he was angry he could not overtake Egypt, on his way north from Egypt, he stopped in Jerusalem and went to the temple. In anger, he spread pig's blood in the temple on December 25, 168 BC, beginning the Maccabean revolt and picturing what Antichrist will do one day. He did this in response to another power that was arising. Rome. In 63 BC Rome took over. Herod the Great was given control of Judea from 37 to 4 BC. He was a madman who murdered his own family when he thought they threatened his kingship. 
He was a master builder and to win favor with the Jews he constructed a new temple over Zerubbabel's temple starting in 19 BC, completed in 63 AD. Gentiles continued to visit synagogues, Rome paved roads, gave better protection to travelers, Pax Romana or Peace of Rome. God prepared everything perfectly, Greek was the common language, the Old Testament was in Greek and everyone could read it, paved roads, sacrifices were reinstituted in 165 BC, the Davidic lineage was known. It was also during this in-between time that the religious groups of the New Testament arose, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, Essenes, and more. Then, at God's appointed time, Jesus was born to Mary, a virgin girl of about 13-14, betrothed to a godly man named Joseph, a descendant of Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, and Solomon about 4 BC fulfilling the promise God gave to Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon and the one who would bring in the inauguration of the new covenant found in Jeremiah 31. Dash. 1. C. Brand, C. Draper, A. England, A. S. Bond, E. R. Clendenin, and T. C. Butler, Eds. 2003. Edom. In Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, p. 460. Nashville, Tennessee, Holman Bible Publishers, Logos. 2. Hill and Walton. 490-491. 3. Norman L. Geisler, A Popular Survey of the Old Testament, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Baker Books, 2007, 238. 4. Hill and Walton, 485-486. 5. Geisler, A Popular Survey of the Old Testament, 243. 6. Geisler, A Popular Survey of the Old Testament, 252. 7. Hill and Walton, 506. 8. Geisler, A Popular Survey of the Old Testament, 259. 9. Hill and Walton, 512. 10. Hill and Walton, 517. 11. Geisler, A Popular Survey of the Old Testament, 297. 12. Geisler, A Popular Survey of the Old Testament, 301-302, Summarized. 13. Hill and Walton, 546, Summarized Outline. 14, Ibid, 543. 15, Ibid, 548.